0: Thanks for listening to this Small Town Theologian Special. This bonus content comes from other Reformed pastors and theologians in small towns. You may not recognize their names, churches, or towns, but these faithful men have good things to say for your comfort. God's sovereign grace is active in small towns. May hearing from these men encourage you, and may your life be shaped by what you learn. In Chester County, PA, sits the greatest square mile in Pennsylvania. At least that's what the website tagline says. It's the borough of Elverson, population just over 1,300 people. Elverson was formerly known as Springfield. European settlers came in the late 18th century. The area grew, especially after the railroad came to town. Elverson was eventually named after James Elverson, the owner of the Philadelphia Inquirer. Alverson was officially incorporated in April of 1911. In 1993, the Alverson Historic District was added to the National Register of Historic Places. Within the district are various buildings, sites, and structures, including bungalow craftsmen, Georgian, and Gothic Revival architecture buildings dating from around 1750 to about uh, 1930 head to the district to see the bank house from the mid 1700s the train station the Blue Rock Hotel, the Springfield School, and a railroad car named Baltimore County. Need some coffee and breakfast? Head to Morgantown Coffee House at 4997 North Twin Valley Road, Suite 2 in Elverson. Grab some coffee and a country egg sandwich on your choice of New York bagel or toast. It comes with local cheddar cheese and pastured egg and you can add sausage, Burt's farm bacon, house cure pork belly smoked ham and avocado eat one for me as a pastor i listen to preaching from other pastors and one of my favorite preachers is steve estes steve is a thoughtful and godly man i respect him a lot and on a few occasions steve has lovingly invested in me unlike many other pastors steve has been the senior pastor of brick lane community church for over 30 years He went to Columbia Bible College and then Westminster Theological Seminary. He's on the board of the Christian Counseling and Educational Foundation, or CCEF, and has taught a preaching course at Westminster Theological Seminary. Steve is an author, and you should check out his books. His, His books and other writings began with a name you probably know. Johnny Erickson Tata. Steve and Johnny have been friends since they were teenagers and grappled together with God's sovereignty and providence in Johnny's paralysis. Johnny liked the style of Steve's writing, and after her autobiography was published, she asked Steve to co-author a follow-up book titled A Step Further. Steve wrote a book titled Called to Die, the story of Wycliffe Bible translator Chet Bitterman, who was kidnapped and slain by political terrorists in Columbia in 1981. Chet was from Lancaster County, where I live. He gave his life trying to reach people with the gospel. Steve wasn't finished writing with Johnny. He co-authored with Johnny the book When God Weeps, Why Our Sufferings Matter to the Almighty. It has 4.8 stars on Amazon. If you are suffering, perhaps this book will comfort and encourage you. Also, pick up a copy of Steve's book, A Better December, Proverbs to Brighten Christmas. Have it by your bedside before Christmas and give a few copies as gifts. Paul Tripp said of this little beautifully designed hardcover book, Here's a book like you've never read before. It meets us at the intersection of ancient biblical wisdom and the dreams, struggles and disappointments that are part of our Christmas season. With humor, poignancy and clarity, Estes demonstrates that Solomon knew things about our holidays that we all need to know. With the help of Solomon, Estes shows you how you can have a Christmas that actually matches the message of the season you are celebrating. Steve is married to Verna, and they have been married for almost 50 years. They have eight children and 16 grandchildren. Steve is the senior pastor of Brick Lane Community Church in Elverson. It would profit you to head to Brick52.org, 52org to learn more about God's work in Elverson. The message you're about to hear is titled, I Will Build My Church, Part A, and it is part of a five-part series. You can find the rest of the messages in the show notes. I hope you are blessed by Steve's message and ministry. May God open your heart to see the beauty of Christ's work in and through his church.
1: John the Baptist, the man who introduced Jesus Christ to the world, lies in a grave. He was beheaded. The cities where Jesus did the most miracles have not repented. The loaves and fish that were meant to feed people and lead Jesus to the bread of life led him instead to demand that he become a king and lead them against the Romans. The scribes and the Pharisees refer to Jesus as the devil, Beelzebub, and they're demanding that he do more miracles, this time not just any of his ordinary miracles, but something from heaven to prove that he is who he says. Yes, he is popular with the crowds in an odd kind of way, but only because they misunderstand. They think he's Elijah or Jeremiah. They think he's anybody but the Son of God. And his own brothers don't believe him. And so we come in Matthew 16, where Jesus is now clearly facing what, by all accounts, would be absolute failure of his mission. All the 12 have watched this failure. Judas is soon going to betray him because Judas has been disillusioned thinking that Jesus was going to do something far more grand and glorious, but now Judas realizes Jesus is really pretty much just nobody. And so Jesus leads his disciples in Matthew 16 to a quiet place. He doesn't lead them to Jerusalem. He doesn't lead them to Galilee. He leads them 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee into an area at the extreme north of Israel. This is a place that is largely pagan, not Jewish. It's a town called Caesarea Philippi. The town was enlarged and named after Caesar by Philip the Tetrarch locally. It was the scene of pagan worship for many hundreds, perhaps thousands of years, very possibly the scene of Baal worship because of the enormous rocks that are there and places for altars and grottos to idols and so forth. And yet it is lovely. It's under the shadow of Mount Hermon, which is the most stunning scene in Israel. And there, in the cool breezes, away from the hot winds and humid awfulness around the Sea of Galilee at that time, there at that lonely place, away from the watchful eyes of the Pharisees and of the kings and of the scribes, and the people who dislike him, <clears throat> Jesus speaks to his disciples, Matthew sixteen thirteen. And now when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man, that is, I am? And they replied, well, some say John the Baptist and others, Elijah, and still others that you're Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But you, he says, what about you? Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, that is, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus replied, Oh, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed (coughs) in heaven. And so in this lonely but beautiful spot away from the watching eyes of a hostile world, Jesus Christ at the time when he most seems like he is a failure, announces a great triumph to his 12 followers. Here's what he says. He says, Peter, you say, I'm sorry, he asks his disciples, who do people say I am? And they say, well, people say that uh, you are um, Elijah or Jeremiah or so forth. But then Peter says, but I say, Jesus, that you are the Messiah, the son of God. And Jesus says, oh, no human insight gave you that. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. This was not revealed to you by man, but by my father in heaven. In other words, Peter, what you just said is God given. You may be Simon, the son of Jonah, but today you are Simon, the offspring of your father in heaven. You have been enlightened despite the blindness that's all around this country. You have been given faith. And so Peter's confession that day was his acknowledgement that God has come to earth in the form of his son. It's Peter's confession that how how crazy this world is, that the powerful descendant of David, the Messiah, has come and has come to set things right. It is his confession that when Jesus healed a leper's person or healed a paralyzed person, that this Jesus has the ability and will one day give us new bodies. It's his confession that when Jesus stilled the storms on Lake Galilee, that one day this Messiah will take all the wind and the fires and the earthquakes that threaten humankind, and no longer will they threaten anyone. It's Peter's confession that when folks unsuccessfully Try to stone Jesus, but Jesus was able to slip away from them, that we will be safe from our enemies someday. And it's his confession that when Jesus forgave the sins of others, Jesus would forgive Peter's sins. It's Peter's confession that this one he's been following for three and a half years will right everything that's wrong, will bring heaven to earth, even if we don't exactly understand how he'll do it or exactly when. It's Peter's confession that when Jesus sets up his throne He and the others and all believers in him will reign with him. It's his assertion that Jesus was true when Jesus said, Fear not, little flock. It is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So after Peter confesses this, despite the belief all around him, Jesus replies, and here's what he says. Peter, he says, You just said something about me. You said that I'm the Christ. That I'm the eternal Son of God, and, and what you said was supremely important. And now I tell you, I'm going to say something about you. And the you is emphatic in the way that this is written here. And what I'm going to say about you is supremely important. You say, I'm the Messiah, the Son of God. I say, You are Peter, the Son of Jonah, a mere human. But Peter means rock. And strong buildings are built upon rock. And I'm going to do something magnificent through you, sir. I will build a church. And it will be my church. And I will use you in building it. And nothing will be able to stop it. In summary then... Jesus is saying to Peter, the world may not believe, but you believe, and your fellow apostles believe, and on you I will found my church. The kingdom of God, you remember what I said, was starts off as the smallest of seeds, but it grows into the largest of trees. And therefore, neither Satan, nor death, nor the grave, nor hell will ever defeat it. And so, it's like the hymn that we all sing, sin and hell In conflict fell, with their heaviest storms assail me, but Jesus will not fail me. When Jesus most seems like a failure, he announces the absolute triumph of his kingdom. And he announces the triumph of his kingdom through those he has rescued from sin, the Christian church. So let's take a better look at this church. Jesus said in our passage in verses 18 and 19, the focus of where we're looking at today, I will build a church. He's talking about some great kingdom, some great enterprise, something really massive he's going to do. Why does Jesus call it a church? He calls it a church because a church is a gathering. Now, the English word, Church in our Bibles comes from the Greek word, pardon me for using a Greek word, but it's important here, the Greek word, ekklesia. Ekklesia is the word we get things ecclesiastical about. Ecclesiastical things are church-like things. The word ekklesia, church, in that language means a gathering, an assembly, a group that's called together for a purpose. It was earliest used in the Greek city-states when citizens at their homes or at their business were called to assemble and vote on some important matter. And so it came to be any assembly or gathering. You may recall from Acts chapter 19, when the apostle Paul was preaching in Ephesus, there was a riot and in an outdoor theater, people were screaming and yelling because his preaching about Jesus was liable to threaten the uh, business trade of the local makers of the local gods. And so the The mob was shouting and screaming and would have torn him to pieces. And we read in the Bible in Acts 19.32, the assembly was in confusion. It's the word church. The church was in confusion. A mob, a group of rioters, because they're gathered for a purpose. Later on, somebody tried to calm the crowd down, that same chapter, and said, Listen, if you guys keep screaming and yelling like this, the Romans are going to come and shut us all down and come down on us. If you want to press the matter further against these Christian preachers, it must be settled in a legal assembly. It's the word church. That's what he's saying. Do you get the feel for what that word means in the way that the New Testament and secular people use it? So when Christ talks of a church, he's not just talking about a building, of course. Most people know that. Nor is he talking about just individual Christians. Oh, you're a Christian, you're a Christian, you're a Christian, you're the church. The idea is collective The idea is God viewing Christians as a group. So why does Jesus call his enterprise a church? It's because a church, by its very definition, by its very word, means a gathering. And so right away we learn something that's fascinating about the New Testament teaching about church. The very word church disallows the idea of a lone Christian disallows the idea of a Christian on his or her own because they read the Bible, because they pray, connecting with Christ, and that works. No, no. He has called us to be part of his gathering. As Mark Dever put it in a brilliant sentence, he said, Christianity is always personal, yes, but never private. Christianity is always personal, but it's never private. But there's more. Why else does Jesus call his enterprise that he's going to found a church? It's because God's Old Testament people were called his church in the Bible. I used to think when I read through the Gospel of Matthew many years ago that when I came to chapter 16, which is the first time the word church is used in, in the New Testament, and Jesus says, I'll build my church, I thought, where did he get that idea from? You know, Jesus is is still living in Old Testament times. They go to the synagogue. They, they go to the temple. They offer sacrifices still because he hasn't died yet. And he says, I'm going to build my church. Where did he get the idea of a steeple and stained glasses and, and organs and all this sort of thing? Well, what I really hadn't realized at the time was that it is not a new idea when Jesus talks about it at all. The Old Testament sheds light on what Jesus meant when he said he would build his church because the word ecclesia, ecclesia, The word we translate as church, that means assembly or the congregation, is the word that is consistently used in the Old Testament for, quote, the congregation of Israel. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, we have this many, many times. Joshua 8.35. Joshua read, quote, to the whole church of Israel, including the women and children and aliens who lived among them. Or Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 2. Uh, the law forbids that certain people can enter, quote, the church of the Lord. Most English versions translate it, understandably, the assembly of the Lord. In the Greek Old Testament, some 100 times, the Israelite community, God's nation, the Jews, were called the ecclesia, the assembly, the congregation, the church. And in the New Testament, When Stephen, who was the first Christian martyr, was being stoned for his faith because of a sermon he just gave, in that sermon, when he's tracing what God did throughout the history of Israel, he talks about them in Acts 7.38 as, quote, the church in the desert. He's talking about the Israelites assembled at the foot of Mount Sinai. Now the NIV, the ESV, various versions translated as the congregation. It is the same word as church, and so the phrase that you may hear from time to time, people talking about the New Testament church and the Old Testament church, is accurate. It's a biblical thought. Now, it's true that the Old Testament church and the New have some differences. The Old Testament church comprised was a comprised almost totally of Jewish people with some foreigners. New Testament church of all races. The Old Testament church had certain rituals that we don't do today. The Old Testament church had certain organizational things like kings and so forth that we don't have today. The Old Testament had an idea of who is in and who is out that's a little bit different from we have today. But the Old Testament church, Israel, the congregation there is the backdrop for Jesus' teaching about the New Testament church. And you get that clearly when you think about it. There were 12 tribes in the Old Testament. I wonder how many disciples Jesus will pick to represent the idea of the continuity with the old. There was Passover in the Old Testament where people would drink the wine and they would eat the bread and so forth. And in the New Testament, we had the Lord's Supper. And the last Passover Jesus celebrated became the first Lord's Supper. This is the continuity of what's going on with God's Old Testament church and his new. The Old Testament church had priests. The New Testament said that we as Christians have been given the privilege now of being priests and we can go directly to God. In fact, 1 Peter 2 verse 9 says, you, speaking of Christians, you are a chosen people. That's the phrase used about the Jewish folks in the Old Testament. You are a priesthood. You are a holy nation. That's a phrase used about the Old Testament Israelites. You are a people who belong to God. So the idea is this, that the New Testament church stands on the shoulders of the Old Testament church. Is there a slide about that? Stands on the shoulders of the Old Testament church, and it draws some principles from that Old Testament. Okay, so Jesus said, I I will build a church. But to take it a little further, Jesus actually said it this way. I will build my church. Oh, now that is interesting. Jesus is saying that what he is going to build, he is also going to oversee. What he's going to establish, he owns it. What he is going to produce and make happen in this great enterprise, he is going to be the Lord over it. He calls it in verse 18, my church. The idea is his in the first place. That's why he calls it my church. Many Christians tend to think, I believe, that church... While it's a very good idea, an edifying idea, it's really pretty much a human idea. They were a group of Christians, and they thought, you know, we should get together, you know, because we're liable to, uh, um, if we don't hang together, we're liable to hang separately, so to speak, as they said during the Revolutionary War. So we get together, and maybe it would be helpful to maybe pray together and share testimonies together and maybe read the Bible together and maybe teach each other from the Bible. But no, that wasn't the idea. It is not a human idea. It's not a voluntary organization. It's not like a soccer league or a book club. The founding of the church was not like a group of well-minded, well-intentioned people starting a charity, let's say, or founding the Red Cross, or founding a volunteer fire department. The Christian church was not man-made at all. In that sense, it's like marriage. People today tend to think that marriage was an arrangement where a a woman thought, you know, I'll have men I don't want into my life, so if I just stick with one man, maybe he'll protect me. And that's how marriage started. No, no, no. God established marriage from the very first chapters of the Bible. So God established his church way back with the Old Testament people and now in the New Testament. And Jesus calls it my church. In Ephesians 5.23, it says that Jesus is the head of his church. He's the head of it because not only... Did he decide it should be in the first place? But he's the head of it because he, as the church's Lord, decides what the church will accomplish, what it will look like. He decides what should be the goals of a church, what a church should do when it's together come from Jesus. He decides how it is organized. What are his officers? Who gets into the church? Who is not allowed into his church? The blueprint is all in his mind of how the church should run. But since the church consists of people, not just buildings, he's got to show us, his people, what he has in mind for his church. So we might ask, well then, if Jesus is the one who runs the church, how do we learn what he wants the church to be? How do we get how he wants it to be organized and what he wants us to do? Well, I'll tell you where Jesus shows the blueprint of what to do in his church. It starts right here in Matthew 16, in this passage we're looking at, and in other passages in the Gospel of Matthew. It is also, Jesus teaches us what the church should be like in the rest of the four Gospels, Mark and Luke and John. In fact, in the whole rest of the New Testament, Jesus talks about what the church should be like. You may recall, for instance, the book of Acts. The book of Acts is written by the same person who wrote the book of Luke, the physician Luke. And when Luke began his second book, his sequel to Luke, called the book of Acts, he began it in chapter 1, verse 1, by saying this, In my former book, that is the gospel of Luke, I wrote about all that Jesus, here's the key word, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. Oh, what he's saying is, My gospel, Luke, was about Jesus while he was on earth and how he died and went back to heaven. But now, he says, I'm going to tell the story of the early church, and in it, I'm going to finish telling you what Jesus only began teaching you back then, because Jesus is going to keep teaching you through what I'm going to write right here. In other words, Jesus continues teaching us about his church in in the book of Acts, which covers the story of the early Christians, how they lived and their triumphs and their mistakes and How they were organized and how the church spread. And then Jesus also gives the blueprint for how he wants church to run in the epistles. Take Peter's epistles. He talks about the Christian church and what it should look like. This very Peter who's being addressed right here. Or take James, who's one of the twelve apostles, who's right there with Jesus in our passage. James in James chapter two, verse two, calls the Christian church, quote, a synagogue. Isn't that fascinating? In James 2, two, he says, if, if, um, if a rich man comes into your synagogue, but most translations just translate it as church, and, and you tell a rich man to take a great seat, but a poor man to sit back in the back, it's bad news, you're sinning. And so we learn from James that there are aspects of what Jewish synagogues did in the time of Jesus that shed light on what a Christian church ought to do. In fact, the epistles so much of them are written about what we should do in a church and how to organize ourselves that Paul writes this in 1 Timothy 3.15. I'm writing you, quote, so that you will know to conduct yourself, I'm sorry, so that you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God. And finally, Jesus tells us in the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, what the church is supposed to be like There's a great deal of teaching in there as well. And most remarkably and surprisingly to many Christians, the Old Testament, as we saw, has much to teach us about what the New Testament church should look like because it is founded on the shoulders of the Old Testament church. So much of the Bible is given to teach us about what church ought to be like and what our relationship ought to be like with it, even when the word church is not in the very verse. It's like this. Suppose you had a neighbor, you moved into the neighborhood, and somebody who had lived there a while knocks on your door and brings you a piece of pie. Welcome to the neighborhood. And suppose that that pie looked like the larger of the two icons up on the screen. That is, it was a beautiful pie, and a piece was just missing. Hmm. Wouldn't it be a little bit odd? Well, I would say that the Bible of many Christians has a significant piece missing from it. Most Christians know that the Bible includes, and they go to the Bible for information about how to get comfort when I'm sad and in sorrow. How can I get salvation and be assured of heaven? How can I get guidance for my life when I have big decisions to make? How can I do better as a father or mother or with my marriage What are the end times going to be like and what should we be looking for? But for many Christians, the missing piece of the Bible in their thinking is the place of church in my life. And that those are the passages that many Christians find the easiest to read, but sort of glaze over and it doesn't capture us. Christians know that it is Christ Jesus that saves, not the church that saves. And thus, for many Christians, church is of relatively low importance. That it is fairly optional to go there on any given Sunday, or fairly optional to be involved with other Christians during the week, that sort of thing. But the Bible teaches that the church is absolutely necessary to Christian maturity. And it's necessary to Christian health that being part of a church is necessary to obey Christ. For instance, you may recall that the Apostle Paul wrote, and he gave a speech, a sermon to elders, and he said in Acts 20.20, you know that in my ministry, I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you. Well, much of what he preached was about what church is and how we're to relate to it. Paul later said in that same speech, Acts twenty twenty seven, I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God, meaning not just the part of God's will about how to have your sins forgiven and make sure you're in heaven, but what God teaches about the Christian church and how to interact with it and what its part in your life should be and your part in its life should be. And Jesus once said this in Matthew 5, 19. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do so will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. And part of the commandments that Jesus taught is what our relationship to his church should be. So in summary, the church, Jesus is going to build his church and he calls it his church. The church belongs to Jesus. He's the one who tells us what a church should look like and what its place in our lives should look like. And truly, brothers and sisters, we ignore what he says about his church to our own harm. Now next, in our passage, Jesus said that Peter and the other apostles would be this church's foundation rock. Jesus said that the foundation on which the church would be built would be Peter and the other apostles. You know that buildings need a firm foundation. We get backhoes and dig way below the freeze line so that the foundation remains firm. Well, when you are able to build on bedrock, that's the best yet. And so what Jesus said about the bedrock, the foundation of his church is in verse 18. I tell you that you are Peter and... And on this rock, I will build my church. Now, most, most folks know that the name Peter means rock. Peter wasn't born with the name Peter. He was born with the name Simon. Simon is a Jewish name. But when when Jesus met him, Jesus gave him another name. John one forty two. He says, "Oh, you are Simon, son of John, same as son of Jonah. But you will be called Cephas." which, when translated, is Peter. Cephas is the Aramaic word for rock, which was a common language spoken then. Peter comes from Petros, which is the Greek word for rock. They both mean rock. So, basically, Jesus is giving a play on words here in Matthew 16. Jesus is saying, Peter, three and a half years ago, I, I named you Rocky. And so you are going to be. And so Jesus gives Peter real authority in this building of the church. In verse 19, he says, Peter, I give you the keys of the kingdom. Whatever that means, we'll talk about that in another sermon. He says, I will give you the ability to bind and to loose. Whatever that means, we'll cover it in another sermon. Clearly, it means that by giving Peter keys and authority to bind certain things and loose certain things, what is clear is that he's giving Peter substantial authority in the Christian church. Now, there are different interpretations of what exactly Jesus meant by these keys, by this bonding and loosing, and by Peter being the rock on which he'll build the church. One view is that when Peter Jesus says, On this rock I build my church, that what he means is that Peter will become the first pope. This is the official teaching of the Roman Catholic Church, and this is one of the major passages that is um, appealed to. The idea is this. In this view, the Apostle Peter has supremacy. He has authority. Um, He is not just a leader of, but he is an authority over all the other apostles. The idea was this, that Peter, most Christians think, history seems to say, went to Rome, and that when he was in Rome, he became the bishop of Rome, And when he died, he passed the authority on to his successor bishop as Rome. And the bishop of Rome always is over all the other bishops all over the world. And therefore, he became the pope. And the idea of the Roman Catholic teaching is that the papacy, that is having a pope, is the unchanging rock of the worldwide Roman Catholic Church. And that therefore, the pope is supreme over the worldwide church. Now, many people do believe that. And there are probably 12 or 15 things we could say in response to it, but let me just pick a few. Certainly, Peter is a leader. And certainly, Peter was recognized as the leader of the 12. But first, we need to know that Peter's authority to bind and to loose, and I know we haven't defined it yet, we'll define it in another sermon, Peter's authority to bind and to loose was not just given to him, it was given to all the apostles. So for instance in our text today Matthew 16 verse 19 we read <clears throat> Jesus says to Peter Peter by the way all the word all the uses of the word you in what i'm going to read here in verse 19 are singular you Peter i give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven But just two chapters later in Matthew 18 verse 18 Jesus says the following to all the apostles. He says, whatever, I'm going to use the word ye when we use the word you in the plural. Whatever ye bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever ye loose on earth will be loose in heaven. In other words, Jesus says the identical things to the other 11 disciples, the other 11 apostles, that he said to Peter. Peter is an important person, but he's a first among equals. Another response to the idea of Peter being a pope comes from the book of Galatians, chapter two, verse nine, and it there the idea is this: that it makes clear that the other apostles were not subordinates to Peter, but they were peers of Peter, because there we uh, we read that the apostle Paul is talking about the Jerusalem church, and when he first visited, and he said that in that church, James and Peter and John were reputed to be the pillars of the church. Here, Peter is listed with two other men as the leaders of the Jerusalem church. And in fact, in that list, James appears first, which is always the honorific place in a list of people. Another response to the idea of Peter's Pope is in Galatians chapter two, verse eleven. The Apostle Peter, although he had done so many great things, he had started to compromise the Christian gospel by refusing to eat with Gentiles, because it implied that if you eat, eat with Gentiles, you don't need to keep the Jewish laws anymore. And although he knew you didn't have to keep the Jewish laws to be saved, other people thought you did, and he was afraid of them. And so he stopped eating with Gentile people in Christian gatherings. And we read that the Apostle Paul rebuked Peter publicly before them all. As someone has written, Can you think of a Roman bishop rebuking the Pope to his face in front of everybody. And we can't. And then we also have the idea that in the Bible, there is no concept of apostles having successors that take their place. No idea of continuing apostles over the decades, which is required to have the papacy because we have, well, let's take Mark. Mark was the Apostle Peter's understudy. Mark wrote the gospel of Mark, apparently under the tutelage of Peter, and yet Mark never became an apostle. And Timothy was the apostle Paul's understudy, and yet Timothy never became an apostle. When the apostle Paul writes his letter to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 1.1, he introduces himself and he says, this letter comes from Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, and it comes from Timothy, our brother. He doesn't call Timothy an apostle. For this reason and many more reasons, the view that Jesus was calling uh, here Peter, the first pope, is one that we cannot accept. So other people, what do they think when Jesus says, your name is Peter and on this rock I'll build my church? Well, other people think that the rock on which Jesus will build his church is not Peter at all himself. It's merely Peter's faith or Peter's confession the idea is that Peter believed that Jesus was the Messiah, and therefore, if anyone else believes that Jesus is the Messiah, he becomes part of the Christian church, and that's the rock that, that Jesus is talking about. But it really does seem like that view, that Jesus is not talking about Peter himself, is an overreaction by Protestants to the Roman Catholic teaching that Peter is the Pope. That Jesus is talking about Peter as the rock, seems the most obvious interpretation if you just read it plainly. And to deny that seems to be a pendulum about people nervous about Catholic doctrine on this point. If you take the the rock that Jesus is going to found the church on as faith, then you lose all the play of the words when he says, Peter, you are a rock, and on this rock I'll build my church. But if faith is the rock in which you build the church, Jesus is saying, Peter... You are a rock, but the foundation of my church will have little to do with you. I'll make faith the rock instead. That's basically the idea. So I really have to go with the third view, which I think by now is probably the majority view among conservative evangelical scholars, and it's this. When Jesus says he will build his church on the rock, he means that rock is Peter. But that rock is Peter as he represents the other 11 apostles and also as he and they believe and teach accurately about Jesus. Let me say that again. The rock is Peter, but it's Peter as he represents the other apostles and as Peter believes and teaches accurately about Jesus. Let me break that little phrase down. I hope this is clear. The rock I'm proposing to you is Peter in this passage. Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon. I tell you that you are Peter. I'll give you the kingdom. You will bind things on earth and be bound in heaven. You will loose and so forth. Seven times he uses you in the singular and he talks to Peter. And Peter clearly was the leader of the 12 disciples. In all four gospels, each list of the 12 disciples, Peter is listed as number one. And then when you get to the book of Acts, the story of the early church, Peter is clearly prominent When Judas hanged himself and the disciples are gathered and say, well, we used to be 12 and now we're only 11. We need to pick a successor. It's Peter who led that discussion and how they were to go about it. When the day of Pentecost came and the Holy Spirit came and to thousands and thousands of Jewish people gathered for a festival in Jerusalem, Peter was the primary one, although they all preached, who stood up and preached a long sermon, one of the longest in the Bible. It's recorded. It's his sermon. Peter was prominent in the healing stories of the book of Acts. We read that people would try to be on the sidewalk just so Peter's shadow would go over them when he walked by. When the disciples were arrested, Peter was the one who spoke up and said, We must obey God, not just men, when they were before the Supreme Court of the Jewish nation. The first preaching of the gospel to Gentile people was by the apostle Peter to the Roman Cornelius and his home. And then in Dax 15, when there was a big council to settle some theological issues in the early church, Peter was prominent at that council. So the point is, the rock is Peter. But the rock is Peter as he represents the other apostles, too. Because throughout the gospel, Peter, yeah, is the one who's always talking. He's answers first. He's outgoing. He's impulsive. He's a natural leader. He's a spokesman for the others. Yet clearly he's a first among equals. And so when he's speaking here, Jesus takes him, we believe, as representing what the faith is of all the apostles. So, for instance, we've already seen how Jesus gave authority to bind and loose, whatever that is, to Peter, and then two chapters later gave it to the other 12, the other of the 12 apostles too. Um, but also, you take a verse like Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. There it's talking about the New Testament church and about apostles and prophets. These are not Old Testament prophets. These are New Testament prophets. And it says that, quote, the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. You see what's happening here. Jesus, through the Apostle Paul, as he writes, is saying that the foundation of the Christian church is based upon these multiple leaders, not just a single leader. Peter was representing the other apostles. Or... You remember what Jesus said in Matthew 19, 28. Jesus said to the twelve, I I tell you the truth, when I, the Son of Man, sit on my glorious throne, you who have followed me will sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. All the apostles are spoken of as equal. In fact, in the book of Revelation, chapter 21, verse 14, when it describes the new Jerusalem, the heavenly city of God, It says that the names of the 12 apostles are engraved on the 12 foundations under the city walls. And the Apostle Paul seems to be included in this too because Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that after Jesus rose from the dead, he appeared to Peter and then to the 12 and then to James and then to all the apostles and last of all to me. I, who do not even deserve to be called an apostle, but by the grace of God, I am. So the rock is Peter. The rock is Peter as representing all the other apostles. And the rock is Peter as representing the other apostles as he and they believe and teach accurately about Jesus. They don't just make up what they want to say. Jesus gave them authority to preach, quote, in his name. Paul said about him and the other apostles, 2 Corinthians 4, 5, we do not preach about ourselves. We preach Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as merely your servants, for Jesus' sake. Or here's what the apostle Paul said about even apostles who would preach something other than what Jesus taught, Galatians 1.18. But even if we, that is Paul and and his friends, but even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach a gospel other than the one I preached to you about Jesus, let him be eternally condemned. He says if a person comes around, it doesn't matter if he's one of the twelve apostles. If he tells you to go a different direction than Jesus of Nazareth, crucified, buried, risen, ascended, and coming again, let that person be eternally in hell. So the idea then is this. The apostles wrote about and taught about not their own message. They taught someone else's message. The word apostle means an ambassador. The apostles taught about Jesus, about who he was, about what he taught. The apostles taught about Jesus' respect for every single word of the Old Testament and Jesus' promise to guide the New Testament apostles as they wrote the New Testament. Jesus invested the apostles with full authority to launch and oversee his church. And he said to them in Matthew 10, 40, he who receives you receives me. And one of the things that Jesus taught them was, I will build my church, but I will use your men, you men to do it. And so Jesus' words back to Peter end now with this wonderful thought, I'll build a church It's my church. I'm going to use you to build it. And nothing will ever stop it. Verse 18, the gates of hell will not overcome it. Various interpretations of the phrase gates of hell. But in summary, you pretty much get the idea. Satan will never stop the church. Death will never stop the church. Fear of persecution will never stop the church. In short, here's what God says about his church through Romans 8, verse 38. I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor ruling spirits, nothing now, nothing in the future, no powers, nothing above us, nothing below us, nor anything else in the whole world will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So I want to ask you today, are you worried about the future? Are you worried about Afghanistan? I don't mean concern for the people. I mean worried for the world. Are you worried for the planet? Are you worried about climate changing and oceans rising? Are you worried about America and where it's headed Are you worried about the future of your children? This passage says that those who are in Christ's church are on the winning side. And what Jesus said to them is what he says to you. Do not be afraid, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you, the church, his kingdom. Next time we gather, two weeks from now, because next week we're going to have a special speaker. We'll look a little further as what the Bible says about the Christian church and our relationship to it.
0: Thanks so much for listening. I hope you were encouraged by Steve's message and that you learned a little something about Elverson, Pennsylvania. Please subscribe to Small Town Theologian on Apple Podcasts, Podcast Addict, Overcast, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, or your preferred platform so you don't miss future specials and regular shows. If you listen on Apple Podcasts, please rate the show and leave an honest review to help give the show a little boost. And tell a friend about Small Town Theologian. It's accessible all around the world. Till next time.